family. Needed to point that out. All right, well, Titus chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning, so turn your Bibles there if you haven't already. I ran across a list in Reader's Digest this week. I don't often read Reader's Digest, but, uh, you know, when you're at... uh, you know, family members' houses, and you'll just, you know, pick up anything laying around. Um, It was titled, Unforgettable Life Advice in Just Six Words. Unforgettable Life Advice in Just Six Words. So being someone who appreciates condensed wisdom, uh, and being someone who, as I get older, I begin to forget things, so that, that title, Unforgettable, sort of stuck out to me. I kept reading, and I actually found some pretty good stuff. Here are a few that made the, made the list. The first one, wanting less feels like getting more. Wanting less feels like getting more. That's pretty good as we enter into the Christmas season. Another one, remember, French fries are gluten-free. Remember, that's pretty good. Dreams don't work unless you do. Basic needs, backbone, wishbone, funny bone. (laughs) Fortitude. Dreams and a sense of humor. Assume everyone is driving with kids. Pretty good. And then the most powerful word, or I should say it so it condenses into those six, six words. Most powerful words, thanks and sorry. Thanks and sorry. That was good. So some good advice in there for sure. But as someone who preaches to a congregation each week, I very purposely commit myself to not giving you advice. And advice isn't a bad thing per se, it's just not what I do. It's not my calling. And that's because, and I've said this to you before, that's because life tips and success strategies, essentially advice, they aren't really the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not advice. The message of the Bible is news, good news. And what that means is preachers should stand before congregations as heralds announcing a message that's not from them, but a message that's from God. And so that's what I strive to do. And coincidentally, the message, the news that I get to herald, is the best news in the world. It's the news that God himself broke into history to solve a problem that we couldn't solve ourselves. He made us right with him. He reconciled us to himself. That's great news. That's really great news. And so it's important for you to distinguish the difference between advice and news. And the reason that's important is because the essence of all other world religions is advice. But the message of Christianity is news. And here's what I mean. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. Here's our advice. Here's our plan. Here's our program. Now just stick to it. But the gospel says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. This is not how you save yourself. This is how you have been saved. You see, Christianity is completely different from all other forms of spirituality. It's not advice. It is news. Let me, let me illustrate it one other way. This difference between advice and news, it's the difference between the box score and the Dear Abby column. The box score reports to me what has happened, right? Durant had 35 points on 12 for 18 shooting and six assists. That's fixed. It's real. It's done. It's been accomplished. There's nothing I can do to make the Thunder box score any different than what it is. All I can do is accept it. It's happened. It's done. 
But what does dear Abby do? Dear lost and broken, your problem is with X and Y, and if you only do Z, then you might find some happiness. See the difference in those two things? Religion is advice. Advice on how you must live to earn your way to God. The gospel is good news that you don't earn your way to God. Jesus has earned it for you. Jesus has already made the way for you, which is why I love our text for today. I love our text for today. Rather than pithy bits of advice that are condensed into six words, this passage gives us the greatest truth in the universe condensed into three words. It's right there in verse 5. He saved us. The core of the Christian faith stated in three words, three syllables. He saved us. And then around those three words, the writer Paul gives what I think is the most powerful explanation of the gospel in the New Testament. I love these verses. In fact, it was because of this passage that I wanted us to study the book of Titus together. I've never preached from this passage. I've long loved it, but I've never preached from this text. And so I've been excited about this sermon for months. So it's rich. Let's read it together. Tune in. If you haven't already, we're in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So those three words there in verse 5. That's the heart of this great passage. And you, and you can see from your notes that I've built the outline around that heart. He saved us. I'll be drawing out six angles on God's saving activity from these six verses. He saved us from. He saved us when. He saved us how. He saved us by. He saved us for. And then he saved us unto He saved us from, verse 3. We return to verse 3 this morning, and I say return because you remember that we concluded our previous study with verse 3. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that Paul was telling the churches on Crete to remember their depravity. He says, remember who you were before God broke in and saved you. Remember how lost and broken you were. Remember how awful your life was. So as you strive to be these model Christian citizens, these men and women who submit to governing authorities, who are obedient, who are gentle and avoid quarreling, who are, who are ready for every good work, remember. Remember as the Spirit takes over and you look more and more godly and you take on the manner of life that Paul describes in verses 1 and 2. Remember, don't get smug and hateful toward the broader culture. Don't get judgmental and holier than thou. 
toward lost people. You can't do that. No, no, no. You have to remember that if not for the grace of God, that's you being described in verse 3. That's you. Foolish, disobedient, a slave to various passions. That's you. Malicious, envious, hateful. That's what God saved you from. The only reason you are different from the lost man at all is because of God's saving power at work in your life. It's not an inherent goodness or a superior intellect that separates you from the world. It's not that you have good sense and they just don't. It's because God saved you. The great open-air preacher George Whitfield a man under whose ministry thousands and thousands of men and women were converted during the First Great Awakening. He once pointed out a homeless drunkard, a man who was stumbling down the street, and he said, There but for the grace of God go I. The most powerful preacher in, in the Western world at the time says, There, that man, that lost, broken, disgusting man, there but for the grace of God go I. God has saved us from our depravity. I remember the first time I heard of the concept of being saved. You need to get saved. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. I I didn't know what it meant. I didn't understand it. Saved. Saved from what? Saved. That that implies danger. Saved implies hopelessness. Saved implies life or death, which that's exactly right, isn't it? Saved from sin. Saved from its power. Saved from its penalty. Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to quote him a lot this morning. Spurgeon said this, Many people think that when we preach salvation, we mean salvation from going to hell. We do mean that, but we mean a great deal more. We preach salvation from sin. We say that Christ is able to save a man, and we mean that he is able to save him from sin and to make him holy, to make him a new man. That's why we must include verse 3 in our study of this entire passage. It tells us what we've been saved from. But then in verse 4, we have the start of a new long sentence, and and, and that pulls us into our next point. Verse 3, we're lost in a desperate condition. And then verse 4, light and hope and salvation, it comes. In verse 3, man is the chief actor. Verse 3, this is all stuff that man does. In verses 4 through 7, the focus is placed on the actions of God and God alone. So we've looked at what he saved us from. How about he saved us when? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. So when did he save us? He saved us when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That's when. The word appeared, we looked at in chapter 2. In chapter 2, it was grace that appeared. And we said that appearing, it pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. When he appeared, grace appeared. So here again in chapter 3, it does the same thing. Christ is the personification or the embodiment of goodness and of loving kindness. Those two things appeared when he showed up. So ask yourself, ask yourself as we head into a season of celebration, what are we celebrating? Are we celebrating the design of a coffee cup? Are we celebrating family? Are we celebrating the great deals that we can get on Black Friday or Cyber Monday or or, or whatever else? Or are we celebrating time off of work or school? What are we celebrating? We're celebrating the incarnation, the astounding reality that God sent 
his son to save us as one of us. Again, as Spurgeon said, the one who made man was made man. And what then happened? What then happened when that happened? When Christ came into the world, the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior, it appeared. So so to whatever extent those attributes had been veiled, they were completely made known in the incarnation. Goodness. Goodness is the idea of God's overwhelming generosity. God is a giving God. Which is why he gave his one and only son. What a profound manifestation of his goodness. God, not just giving blessing. God, not just giving common grace. Not just life and and breath into your lungs. God giving himself in giving Jesus Christ. The term goodness is used all over scripture to speak of God's kind benevolence. His goodness. But then loving kindness... That's a little bit different word. It's the word uh, philanthropia. We actually get the word philanthropy from it. And it's used only here in Scripture. And it's a great word. It literally means pity, compassion, eagerness to deliver from pain or distress because of strong affection. Very important qualifier there at the end. Because of strong affection. It has the idea of great love, of strong affection. It's not pity for the wrong reason. It's pity out of strong affection. God is kind, and in his kindness, he's caused to have a strong affection toward us. Out of which he acts. He wants to act in compassion and in love. God has always been that way. And he manifests this character in thousands of ways all the time. But when Christ appeared, it became overwhelmingly clear that the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God toward men was of a quality and a character that is beyond our comprehension. It's astounding. So that's when he saved us. When he sent Christ. When Christ showed up. Now let's look at how. How he saved us. Verse 5. Two aspects to the how. The first negative, the second being positive. We'll start with the negative. It says, he did not save us because of works done by us in righteousness. So as plain as it could ever be stated, God doesn't save us by our works. Our works contribute nothing to our salvation. Let me say it this way. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is sin. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin part, is what you need to be saved from. Luther said, we no more earn heaven by good works than babies earn their food and drink by crying and howling. Charles Spurgeon again said, if you can save yourself by your works, go ahead and do so, fools that you are, for you might as well hope to drink dry the Atlantic. Works done by us in righteousness which likely means our adherence to the law, that righteous standard established by God. We don't save ourselves by living up to those things. We don't. We can't. Remember, it's Paul who's writing this. Paul, who was the king of works righteousness, which is why when he wrote to the church at Philippi, he said this. He said, Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to kind of paraphrase it for you. He says, look, I was circumcised the eighth day. When it comes to ritual, I had all the ritual. I was of the people of Israel, the race of the Israelites. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
I had tribal privilege as well as racial heritage. When it comes to being a Hebrew, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. When it comes to the law, I chose to be a Pharisee because I wanted to take it to the nth degree. When it comes to righteousness, there wasn't one thing in the law for which anybody could hold me blamable. I had done all of it. I had covered every conceivable human base of righteousness, and then I realized, Paul says, it was all rubbish. And all those things that once were counted gain to me, he says, I counted loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. The best of the deeds that I have done, Paul said, they were nothing but trash, scubalon, which means manure or dung or rubbish or garbage. He saved us not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, as important as we think our self-righteousness is at times. J.C. Ryle said, Our best works are nothing more than splendid sins. We're not saved by our own righteousness, by our own works. That's the negative aspect of how he saved us. Here's the positive. He saved us according to his own mercy. Mercy is a magnificent word. It's the word helios. And it's by his mercy that God has saved sinners. We'll talk about grace a little bit more in a few minutes. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is a kind of radical compassion. And God's mercy is always greater than your miseries. You have a gross amount of sin, but God has a greater amount of mercy. You cannot outsin God's mercy. You can't outdo it. Your actions toward God, your sin which offends God, your disobedience against God, it accrues and it accrues and it accrues. And God in his holiness and in his justice, he is absolutely right to give you wrath and judgment to not save you, but just to give you what you want, which is separation and independence from him. But instead, instead, he has mercy on you. And it's that mercy which saves you. So not according to you, not according to your worthiness, but according to his mercy. There's people that don't like this. In their pride, they want to earn it. In their pride, they want to have a a big part of it. They want to at least meet God halfway. Uh -uh. There is no halfway. It's according to his mercy. So that's how. How negatively, how positively, now by. What are the means that he uses to save us? Again, it's twofold. He saved us by, first, regeneration. God saves us by regenerating us. What does that mean? Well, the word washing is in there too, and so you might think that's about baptism. It's not. This is not about baptism. It's about regeneration. It's about God granting new life to us. Regeneration is actually a compound word in the Greek. It's literally translated born again. So the washing of regeneration is what God does to make you spiritually alive. Again, verses 4 through 7, they have nothing to do with what we do. There isn't even a mention of faith in this passage. This is about what God has done to save us. And the action he takes to bring his saving power to our hearts 
is regeneration. James 1.18 says, Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That bringing forth of his will, that's regeneration. It's from him. Remember John chapter 3. John 3, when Jesus, one night in Jerusalem, he's met by a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks Jesus very sincerely, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, you must be born again. And what's the upshot of that answer? Why did that confuse Nicodemus? Because what it means is, just as you didn't do anything to be born physically, great that we had these babies paraded up here this morning, they didn't do anything to be born physically, God just gave them life, placed them in their mother's wombs, brought them forth. Just as you don't do anything to be born physically, you don't do anything to be born spiritually. God regenerates you. He makes your heart alive toward him so that you'll put your trust in Jesus. It's him. He causes it. Life is in his hands. He's the originator. That's regeneration. The old theologian John Murray, he said, we are not born again by, by our own repentance or faith or conversion. We repent and believe because we've been born again. See, he's just putting it in proper order. And that new birth, it has a cleansing effect. With regeneration, there is a washing that deals with the guilt of sin that you know you have. You know you have it. The reason many of you still feel the overwhelming guilt of your sin, you still, you still feel the weight of your own unworthiness, you still feel like, like you're stained and, and, and unclean, it's probably because you've never experienced regeneration. You've never been born of God and, and given a whole new life. Then along with regeneration, he saves us by the renewal that comes with having the Holy Spirit fill your life. This is sort of the next logical step. The effect of regeneration is new life, and that new life emerges out of new birth, which is enacted by the Holy Spirit filling you. And again, there's so much that could be said in all of this, but the Holy Spirit is the one who renews us. So God, the third member of the Trinity, is involved in this. Meaning, this will not be a halfway, kind of, sort of, partially accomplished renewal. This will be a radical renewal happening in your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man may be in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. We are a whole new creation. We walk in newness of life. We have put on the new man. Life is totally renewed. It's not like it used to be in any way or shape or form. We have a new identity and new longings and new aspirations and new desires and new passions and new affections. And it's all a work of the Holy Spirit. We don't conjure that up. Paul says of the Spirit in verse 6, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit whom God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. Notice how the entire Trinity is involved in saving us. The entire Godhead is active in our salvation and in making us look like Jesus Christ. But Once again, we couldn't do anything to get the Holy Spirit on our own. You remember Simon in the book of Acts, Simon who tried to buy the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, may your money perish with you. There's nothing you can do to get the Holy Spirit. It's something, this text tells us, it's something God pours out. And it tells us in verse 6, 
He pours out that Spirit upon us richly, which is an abundant and endless supply. What a tremendous thing it is to contemplate what God has done in your life if you're a believer in Christ. He saved you by His kindness. He saved you by His love, His mercy, His regeneration, because you wouldn't have done it yourself. He saved you and filled you with His Spirit. He did it all. He did it all. And verse 7 says what He did it for. He did it for our justification. So that being justified by His grace is how the verse reads. So not by giving us what we deserve, we are actually justified. What did we deserve? We deserve death. We're sinners. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserved. But the truth of the gospel is Jesus paid the price we deserved to remove our sins from us, justifying us by His grace. His grace. C.S. Lewis, who it's actually his birthday today. He would have been 114 years old today. He said, God gives his gifts where he finds the vessel empty enough to receive them. God gives his gifts where he finds the vessel empty enough to receive them. That's grace. When it comes to grace, all you need is need. That's what you need, is need. You need to know you're needy. And that grace is going to give you what you don't deserve. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have our sin removed. We don't deserve to be imputed the righteousness of God. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve to be just before God. We don't deserve to come into his presence. We don't deserve heaven. But grace gives it to us because God's justice is satisfied in Christ. And he declares us justified justified. Incredible word there. I know I'm using lots of theology terms, justified and regeneration. Let me tell you, I don't want to shy away from those words because they add so much meaning to what it means for you to be saved. Here's a story about justification that I love. Story goes that there was a man in England who had purchased a Rolls Royce. The man decided to take a holiday in Europe and he wanted to take his Rolls Royce with him to tour through the French countryside. So he put the Rolls-Royce on the ferry and went across the English Channel. He was going through Europe looking at the sights when suddenly his Rolls-Royce broke down and there was nobody around there who could fix it. He sent a cable back to the company in England and they flew a man over who did the repairs. He got the car running again, then left and went back to England. The man thought to himself, this is going to cost me a ton of money. But they never sent a bill. When they finally got back to England, never having received a bill, he sent a letter to the company telling them what had happened, how the mechanic had come over, and wondering what the charge would be. He got a letter back from the Rolls-Royce company saying as follows, Dear Sir, thank you so much for your letter. You need to know that we have no record in our files that any Rolls-Royce has ever broken down at any place at any time for any reason. And that's what justification is all about. You may fail, you may break down, but God looks down at you and says, there is no record that my child has ever broken down at all, ever. That's what justification is. 
The record is wiped away, and you're credited with perfect, eternally secure righteousness, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's yours. It belongs to you if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ. When God sees you because of your union with Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see the broken down you. He doesn't see the sinful you. He doesn't see the you that battles with all these different areas of the flesh. No, he sees righteousness. That's justification, guys. That's what it means. Just as if you never sinned. And that's a standing that comes to you by grace. Some of you need that standing. Some of you are without it in this moment. But if you, if you sense, if you know that God is working on your life, if you, if you understand the fact that you're a sinner and Christ is the Savior that you know you need, you put your life in His hands through God's saving power and His acting grace, and you will be justified. So He saved us for our justification, but it doesn't stop there. He saved us for our glorification. That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we possess, you and I, we possess eternal life in principle right now. We already have it. Because we're heirs. We're written into the inheritance. We're written in ink, in blood, you might say. We don't have to question our status. We don't have to wonder if we'll make it. We can look ahead with certainty to the everlasting life that's ahead of us because it's already started in us now. And that's going to be a glorious existence, isn't it? It will be a life in full fellowship with God. We will have fullness of joy, fullness of meaning. We'll, we'll have a, a sinless life. We'll be per, it'll, be, it'll be eternal bliss, eternal life. And he saved us for that promise. And we don't have to hope for it like we hope for better weather. Man, is the sun ever going to come out again? No. We hope for it with certainty. That's what Christian hope is. It's not wishing. It's certainty. We're heirs. We have an inheritance that has been bought and paid for, and it's ours. So he saved us for that. It's, been an, it's an act of grace toward us. And then in verse 8, there, there comes this charge given to Titus. And, what's, and this is just sort of a, an aside here. What's the charge? Paul says to Titus, and really to any believer who would read or hear this letter, he says, I want you to insist on these things. Which means, preach this material. Declare it. The verb tense causes this to say, don't stop insisting on these trustworthy statements. Perpetually share these truths. And this is important because I believe that we are a people with what I call gospel amnesia. We forget how loving and kind God has been toward us. We forget. We, f- we forget how secure we are in his hands. We fail to recall what he's done in justifying us through his grace. Therefore, we need to be told and retold and retold. And when we doubt, there needs to be people in our midst insisting on the importance of these truths and speaking them into our hearts and minds, preaching them boldly. This is why the gospel is a core value of Enid M.B. Church. We don't want to ever stop talking about it. We never want to stop insisting upon its importance. We want to obey Titus 3.8. 
to insist on these things, these trustworthy statements, these sort of creedal statements that have made their way into the early church. Don't stop. Finally, he's, he says that he saved us unto something, which is to say he saved us so that we would do something. So finally, our actions sort of enter into the frame here. God has carried the whole load up until this point in the passage. He's done everything Felt kindly toward us. He loved us compassionately. He showed us mercy. He washed us from our sins. He gave us new life through regeneration. He put his Holy Spirit in us. He graciously poured out his righteousness upon us, justifying us, making us future heirs of his glory. He did it all. But then he saved us unto something in verse 8. That we who are on the receiving end of all these wonderful blessings and benefits that we may be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Not because good works save us. We're clear on that. They don't. They don't contribute to our salvation, but but because they are excellent and profitable and for the benefit of others, we devote ourselves to them. What that means is that people will look upon those in the church and say, you know, there's something different about those people. And not odd, different, or goofy different, but, but good different. They say, I need to be around those people. Our, our world needs more of those people. I, I should be one of those people. One way of asking the question about our devotion to good works is this. Is that if our church dissolved tomorrow, would any unbelieving people in our community even notice? Would they care? Would they say, oh man, crud, our community is now going to be a more dismal place to live because that church is gone? Would they say, man, we're going to have to raise taxes because that church was was so good and so faithful at taking care of and, and loving so many people. They were so devoted to good works. Would anyone say those kinds of things about Enidimby Church? You see, good works, as it is stated in this passage, it doesn't mean morality. God didn't do all of this for us and in us so that we would just be really good rule followers. He did it so that we would live lives a thousand percent different than the world around us. And what that basically means is that we would be people that live for his glory and not our own glory. He did it so we'd find security in him and not in ourselves. He did it so we'd strive after eternal things and not earthly things. He did it so we could live for the joy of others rather than constantly protecting our own rights and our own little momentary bits of happiness. Paul's message here to Titus and to the the greater Cretan Christians and and really to all of us is, is this. He's saying, look... You're living in a godless pagan culture. Don't you sit there in smug self-righteousness condemning that culture. You be grateful that God and his sovereignty, that he saved you. And don't you look at the world as the enemy. They're the ones you're to reach in love. Your good works should benefit them because that's who you once were. And if not for the grace of God, you still would be. He saved us. Therefore, who gets all the glory? He does. He does. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you that you're good. 
and your goodness appears in Jesus Christ, that you have loving kindness toward us, strong affection that is made apparent through Jesus Christ. That you've made salvation by your mercy, not by our works. That you've justified us by your grace. That we stand here before you, people who are righteous because of Christ. You are pleased with us because of Christ. You don't see our sin because of Christ. Father, thank you for saving us. We confess together this morning that we are a people who needed to be saved. And through your actions, and through your awesome character, and by way of your justice, you accomplished the saving. So we praise you today for that, God. Thank you for this time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.